This is potentially the largest rattlesnake den in North America. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And it's potentially one of the largest uh, snake dens in Alberta because there's also three other species of snakes in that den. Is sharing the same den? Yes. So the prairie rattlesnake, and then is it some non-venomous like garter snakes in there as well? Garter or? snakes. Um, what else is there? Some racers? I can't remember the name of all the species that we have in Alberta. It's not very many. We have seven species of snakes in Alberta. So Yeah. But that that's super cool that uh, we have all these snakes in this one den down in the, the prairies here in Alberta. That is very cool. So so he's going to take that 1,200 tags and monitor them over the next three years and see kind of how they fare, where they're dying, where we're losing them and whatnot? Yeah, yeah, because they're a threatened species. So it's important for him and the government and uh, this other organization to monitor them and see how their population is doing because they're currently threatened. So that's very close to being endangered. So we don't want that, especially for the only species of rattlesnake that we have in the province. Right. Do you, have you ever seen one in the wild? I've never seen one. I've not seen uh, the prairie rattlesnake in the wild yet. I've seen lots of pictures. Yeah. Lots of really cool pictures that I can send you for the episode two from Adam. Sure. That'd there's, be awesome. There's, there's like one picture where it's like 20 rattlesnakes in just this one den. It is wild. It looks so cool. to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, I'm speaking with Brandon Millichamp, who is the co-host of the Canadian Herpetoculture podcast, and he's also the current president of Terrace, which is the Alberta Reptile and Amphibian Society. For those of you who aren't familiar with what Alberta is, that is one of the provinces in Canada. Now, in the episode, we discuss how Brandon got into reptile keeping, as well as a few of the really interesting species that he's currently working with. He has a few breeding projects going with Leoheterodon. I hope I'm saying that genus right. That is the Madagascar giant hognose snakes. He keeps all three species in the Leoheterodon genus. So we discussed that, the differences between them and, and sort of how his breeding projects are going along or coming along. But also, I think this conversation has a much deeper purpose and it's it's very important for the overall health of our hobby and herpeticulture in general. And that is we discuss herp societies. And I think this is a very underutilized aspect of our hobby and especially now I think they've sort of they were bigger in the past and then the you know internet Facebook forums came along and I think a lot of those herp societies dissolved and Brandon talks about the importance of a healthy herp society and how they can function within our communities and within our society to make sure that our hobby is protected and that we're doing the responsible and the right things as animal owners we do keep exotic animals so part of that is we, we do have to bear the the responsibility of doing this right. So Brandon talks about some incredible ideas and some incredible things he's done with his society that go a long way to showing the community that we are responsible. And one of the things we talk about is emergency action plans. It's not something that we've talked about a lot. I don't think we've ever mentioned on the podcast. So Brandon talks about how he's putting those plans together. He talks about how he's had involvement with the government and different municipalities as far as reg- rules and regulations and bylaws go and how he incorporates the society into education and whatnot with younger kids. And it, it's just a fascinating conversation. And I hope what it does is either promote people to start their own herp societies if they're 
there aren't any in your area or to reinvigorate the ones that are just sort of hanging on by a thread. There's so much great work that can be done here and I think this is a great foundational episode to give people some good ideas and good base ideas of what they can do with a herb society in their community. And as always, if you're looking for more information on this episode, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find the show notes for every episode that has been recorded. And you may start realizing that I'm starting to fall back onto a regular schedule as far as posting and publishing podcasts go. I'm not back to the every seven days like I was before the baby was born, but we should be back at every 10 days, I think. And for those of you that have been sticking around for the last few episodes, you do know that I have recently outsourced my editing, so that's now being done by someone else, which is a huge weight off my plate. Of course, it's also a new expense on my plate. It's about $600 a month. So if anyone, if you are interested in helping support the podcast financially, you can do that for as little as $3 a month over at patreon.com slash animals at home. There you will have early access to the episodes. You have access to submit questions to upcoming guests, and you also will automatically be added to our Discord server so you can chat with the other listeners of the podcast as well. So if you are a, a listener of the podcast and you want to show your support that way, that really does go a long way to help me continue to p- publish this podcast without losing money, of course, which is the goal. And if you aren't interested in supporting financially, of course, that is 100% okay. Just listening to the show is really a lot of support. But what you can do is share the episode with as many people as you can on Facebook and on Instagram. That really does go a long way as well. And thank you so much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're looking to help support the podcast and you're also in the market for a new enclosure, you can head to AnimalsAtHome.ca slash CRH. That URL will take you directly to the Custom Reptile Habitats website. And if you go through that link, that is an affiliate link. So if you do make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, that helps me keep the lights on in here as well. And I think that is it. Enjoy the episode. Well, Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you. Obviously, we've uh, stayed in touch for several years at this point. You're another Canadian reptile podcast, and we go back and forth on a bunch of different things. So why don't we start with just your background, how you got into reptile keeping, and I really want to dig into some of those projects you're working on as well. So tell us the origin story here. So um, my dad originally got a snake, uh, which we named ended up naming Cuddles, which she is a normal boa constrictor. She is now 20 years old, so I got her when I was 10. So I don't consider that time frame of me actually keeping the snake myself because my dad did most of the work for most of those that time. So um, it did give me a lot of experience and I read a lot of books in the meantime on different reptiles. Uh, I read The Complete Boa Constrictor, which made me want to get a sunglow boa because it was just so gorgeous in the pictures. And mm-hmm. I ended up getting one quite a few years later down the road. Um, which is actually behind me in that enclosure there. Awesome. Which, was the original boa that your dad picked up, was that spark? Did you want the snake? Were you talking about wanting a snake or was that something that he wanted to get? Um, we kind of talked about getting a different pet because we just didn't have space for a dog or the time for a dog as our family was fairly busy. My dad was always gone out of work, out of town for work a lot. So um, his friend was like, hey, my son's not taking care of this animal very well do you want it? And then uh, we kind of all talked about it and we were all really excited. I've always liked snakes and dinosaurs. As a young kid, I read a lot of books on dinosaurs as most of us probably have. So it was, it was pretty exciting to get a snake when I was that old. Um, so we ended up going on the road trip to Red Deer at the time. And then we picked up the snake and 
um, we kind of came up with the name Cuddles for whatever reason. I can't actually remember the reason, but that's that's the name that we chose. And she's she's a very great snake. She's never sh- struck at anybody. She's never bitten anybody. She's a pretty lazy boa constrictor. So do you still have that snake or is it with your dad? No, she's actually at my house right now. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, she's over eight feet. So she's a pretty large boa um, for a normal anyway. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and her coloration is just fantastic. I think normals get overlooked because of all the different color morphs and stuff. So I don't think there's as much of appreciation for them because they don't have the high price tag because they're not a fancy coloration, yeah. but they are the same great animal that everybody loves. It's just in a regular jungle pattern Yeah, that I think is overlooked. And in my personal preference, I like animals that have more of a natural coloration than all these kind of morphs but i do have a couple morphs of boas in my collection like the sun glow and then i have a central american motley Hmm. and then i have a california king snake which is a high white and then everything else in my collection is normals Hmm. because i keep madagascar hognose species i have all three so there is no morphs in those currently um, there is some some slight color variations and pattern variations that I have noticed in my experience with keeping them. So I've kept those for probably, what is it, about eight years now. And um, I started off with Wildcots as there was no captive birds at that time. So I had to establish them, um, which can be very difficult if you don't know what you're doing. Mm. And that was my first pair of Wildcots. Luckily, these are pretty hardy snakes when they're adults which was a benefit because if I got them really young in with my experience with the hatchlings that I have produced, it's not a fun time. They are hard to establish and they don't feed very well. So, so what, what brought you to, to that species? Cause that is a really unique species. I don't think there are many, maybe you know the answer to this, but there are very few people in Canada that are working with that species. So how did your hobby progress to picking such a niche animal to work with? Um, I did like the Western hog noses. They did look pretty nice, but they were pretty small and I kind of like a little bit larger of an animal. It's easier to handle and uh, they're a little bit more robust. And I just really liked their color pattern. Um, and I liked the fact that it, there wasn't a whole lot of information out there. So there was a lot more room for me to continuously learn about that species. So with having this all three species i've been reaching out to herpetologists for different information Mm -hmm. and finding as much information i can find on google google scholar looking for different scientific documents on their breeding behaviors um, what they eat in the wild i've talked to dr brian fry about them being rear fanged and possibly being venomous and uh, just finding out all the information that i possibly can when it becomes available um, which is kind of strange because the Madagascar giant hognose is one of the most common snakes on Madagascar. Yeah. And yet there is very little information that I've been able to find on them. So are the three species, are they, is it three subspecies of the Madagascar? Three separate species in okay. the same family. What, what, what are they? So there's the Madagascar giant hognose, there's the speckled hognose and the blonde hognose. Okay. And they're all actually separate species, but they do look similar besides like color and, and, and pattern and whatnot. They're all different sizes. So oh, like the sizes. giant is like between four to six feet. Uh, the speckled is probably between like two to three feet. 
And then the blonde is pretty, well, the speckled is probably a little bit bigger, probably like up towards two to four feet. And then the speckled, uh, the blonde is more around like two to three feet. So they're quite a bit smaller, a lot smaller in diameter and uh, body wise. And their body, all their body structures are quite a bit different from each other too. And the habitat is quite significantly different because the speckled hognose that come from Southwest Madagascar, where it's more arid, dry, and uh, it does not see very much rain at all in my research because I was looking up uh, what kind of precipitation in the areas that these animals are found in so I can recreate the humidity levels. They are very dry most of the year compared to the rest of the island. So, and then the giants, they are found almost everywhere on the island. And then uh, the blondes can cross paths in some uh, areas of the island with the giants, but they don't cross paths with the speckleds in the West. Mm. That's like about the only areas that they don't cover from my current research. Did all three species come to you as wild caught? You said you started with wild caught. I know that was with the, for sure, the giants. I'm not sure about the others as well. Yeah, they're all currently wild caught. I have bought some um, F1 babies of the speckleds, but unfortunately they did not make it. Um, they just ended up going downhill, which has been my experience with the giants as well. So it could be a diet issue is um, we're not exactly sure what they eat when they're very young. Do you have any um, speculate? Do you, do you assume it's more amphibian or, or something or? I It's hard to determine because um, from like pictures and stuff that come from very dry foresty areas. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes on when I look at iNaturalist for what areas that they come from, sometimes they're very close to rivers and sometimes they're very far away from rivers and like rocky outcrops. And then have you had any successful pairings yet with, with any of the three species? Uh, I've had three successful pairings with the giants, but not very great success with clutches. So I've had some clutches with like 12 babies and one baby survived. So they would, they would start out eating pretty well. And then eventually they just start declining. So I'm not sure if it was because of temperature for incubation, which I did go pretty low. So I was doing 82 degrees. So, and then it took like 110 days for them to hatch out. So I figured going a little bit lower versus a little bit hotter would be more beneficial. So it gives them longer to uh, fully form. So that was, that was my hope anyway. And that's some, uh, my friends, a couple of my friends have produced them as well. And that's the kind of temperatures that they went with and they've had pretty good success rates as well. How many people are working with those species in, in Canada? There's not very many. I'm not sure if you know the number for maybe the States as well. Um, for my knowledge in Canada, five people currently, and, uh, three of those people were in Alberta alone. Okay. So that's, so it's a small which is, number. I, yeah. Which I also find is very strange that uh, a lot of people who've had the most success are from Alberta versus Ontario, where everybody breeds everything under the sun. <laughs> well, you never know. It could, it could be, you know, natural climate of, you know, Alberta's a lot drier. Maybe there's something there that, you know, you have some different cues that are setting up breeding behaviors. Who knows? When I pair mine up, they breed more in the summertime. And then some people from other areas in Alberta, they breed in the fall and they have good success rates, but mine don't seem to breed till the summertime, which is kind of interesting because um, I've had the same species in very similar 
climate in the province because I am in Calgary and uh, those guys were in Medicine Hat and the other guy was in Calgary too. So the climates are very similar versus if I was in like Edmonton where it's a lot farther north and the barometric pressures and the temperatures are drastically different. Was there something that, I'm not sure how your herpetoculture, your personal journey changed over time, but were you breeding other species before you got into working with this species specifically? Or like, was there... Was there something that that changed in how you thought about uh, the animals you kept, as far as like focusing on something that was more rare? Um, I notice a lot of people go through a lot of different species. Uh, I kind of did that a little bit in the beginning, where I got a bunch of different animals and kind of found what fits me. And then um, this species just was very intriguing to me because there's not a very lot of lot of information. So. I, I like the long-term goal of trying to find out as much information as I can. Um, I just enjoy the long-term goals and some of the people who want instant gratification from, I bought some adult ball pythons and I bred them later this year. Mm. To me, that's not very satisfying um, because I want to see different behaviors because like even my adults, um, I waited from wildcats, I waited three years before I even bred them because I didn't know how old they were. I wanted to make sure that they were well established. Did they come in adult size or? All of them that I've gotten so far came in as adults. Okay, gotcha. Um, the herpetologists that I've talked to have never seen hatchlings or uh, subadults in the wild. Oh, wow. That's so, interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, I think they might be hiding in low-lying brush. And then when they get large enough, more open to being seen because uh, there's a lot of on some snake pages that I'm on in Madagascar, uh, they see giants every day during the, it's about this time of year, I think it is. And some people are like, yeah, I seen five in my yard this year. Wow. Yeah. So they, they see quite a few of them. And is the rear fang venom significant at all for, for humans? I'm not sure if um, Dr. Brian Fry had any info on that. So he did a study on them and uh, he compared them more to an indigo. So they're, they have a very strong bite, but the venom does pretty well nothing. So it's very primitive and the delivery system is very poor. So he said it's not concerning. Um, I did ask him if he had any documentation on it. And he's like, there was really no finding. So I didn't really document anything. Mm. So, But if they have strong jaws, it still hurts to get tagged by them. Yeah. Like hatchlings are terrible. <laughs> they're so mean. Uh, but it's probably because they're like, this thing's trying to eat me. Exactly. So, were the wildcat ones the adults? Were they pretty cantankerous when you first brought them in, or did They're they very up? defensive? Okay. And even my wildcats that I have now are very shy. Okay, so yeah. They don't. If I walk into my snake room and they'll just eyeball me, and then I get too close, and then they just hide yeah. instantly. So, and I've had them for like eight years, and they still just hide. Well, that's what I find interesting about how you keep your animals. Like you just became obsessed with this species and it seems like um it, you found a species that you really enjoyed and i know you just scour the internet everywhere looking for information and you, you you're creating almost like your own science project in your own in your own room and you're going to you know if there's only a few people that are breeding them you're going to find new information that isn't necessarily out there i'm sure that part of it excites you as well yeah finding new information does really excite me especially when i get uh sent documents from herpetologists because i like find people who are part of 
the articles and I'm like, Hey, do you have any inf- more information? And they're like, yeah, I can, s- what's your email? I'll send you all this, all these different files. And yeah. That's what I mean. Like you're always in contact with these like professionals and, and there's, you're like on their mailing list. Now you're getting all this like cutting edge information right to your inbox. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really exciting. Cause it's like, Oh, this new document that I didn't seem before, or I wasn't able to access. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm able to read this information for my own personal use. And it's, it's fantastic because like I, uh, there was one document about they found a Madagascar giant female two feet below ground level wow. with her eggs. So that is very interesting. Um, there was no documents of the humidity in the ground that I recall anyway. It's been a while since I looked at that. So, but that far below ground is pretty interesting. And they dug their own uh, burrow for that. They didn't use some other animals burrow. Wow. To my understanding, because it was a very compact hole. Interesting. Well, it's a that's a good lesson for people too, is that most of the time if you contact researchers, they're happy to share the information or their papers with you. Like you don't have to pay go through the paywall. Like of course you can do that, but a lot of times if you just contact the people who wrote the papers, they are excited that someone else is is as excited about the, you know, the niche that they're focused on. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it feels really rewarding to talk with somebody who's been trying to find out more information about the species that you are after too. Mm. So you guys have very similar interests. Uh, herpetologists kind of do have more of a leave it in the wild if you can outlook on things, but uh, they are, they are still happy to give you information. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about your community involvement? Because not only are you a keeper and you've been keeping for a long time and you're focusing on, you know, some, some rare species, but you also do a lot in the community. And I feel like that's really, I'm not sure if that's changed in the last couple of years, but for sure in the last year, it seems like you've taken on a lot. So maybe you could just let everybody know what you're doing right now and then we'll get into it in more detail. So I think it's about five years ago when I moved to Calgary, um, I joined the Alberta Reptile and Amphibian Society, which is uh, short form is Terras for people that don't know about us. Um, so I joined as a general member, seeing how it was ran, um, seeing kind of where the direction was going. And um, there is other people in the presidency role and vice president and treasurer and stuff like that. It's changed a lot since then. Um, so originally, um, the, about two years later, the secretary had to leave for some medical reasons and my wife took over. And then Later that year at the AGM, I took vice president. Um, so it wasn't this past year, but the year before. And uh, there was quite a few changes that I wanted to see because I think societies have a beneficial role to the community if they are done correctly. Because there's a, there's a lot of involvement that we can have within the industry and the community. Mm. Because without having us, we have less of a professional looking voice to government organizations, municipalities, uh, the federal government, and so on and so forth. And I think that looks really good if we have a a group of people who are organized and doing things to benefit uh, conservation, uh, the community, uh, education, and other stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think that's all very important for us to work on as as a whole. Because without that kind of stuff, uh, we're going to less likely be taken seriously when there's proposed law changes and stuff like that. Well, even so, having just like the executive structure is something so simple, but looks so much more professional if you're 
reaching out to a government official or somebody else and you have, you know, president of the Herb Society or secretary, whatever it is, they, they go, oh, okay, these people are actually organized. They have, they probably have minutes. They probably have, you know, executive meetings that they have to follow up with. And that makes people more comfortable with us. Yeah, it, it makes us look better because we are trying to be organized. We're trying to get on their level and um, do things the right way. And then also with being a registered not-for-profit, which is a lot different than a nonprofit, um, it also recognizes us with the government uh, provincially in our case. Um, we are not recognized as a federal nonprofit yet. Um, we might be able to reach that goal eventually because we need a lot more funding than what we have currently to reach that goal. Um, but it really helps with when we do talk to other organizations. Um, cause recently we talked to uh, Fort Mac municipality. So the real municipality of Buffalo, um, because they made some bylaw changes a couple of years ago. And, um, we are looking to amend that because they banned boa day and Python a day. And that does not benefit the community because they are legal within our province because we have provincial legislation that restricts what we can keep. Well, restricts what we can't keep, I should say, because it's a banned list of species. Right. Rather than a positive list. Yes. Which so I this think is, is just one community, beneficial. like one of the northern communities in Alberta decided that they'd make a, their own kind of rule and yeah. they banned all boas and pythons. And venomous and uh, spiders, all insects and uh, stuff like that. So we don't want people to keep venomous. It's not legal within the province anyway. Um, I don't think it's wise for most people to keep venomous. Um, a lot of people aren't properly trained, don't have the right tools to um, do what they need to do in case of emergency. Most people don't have anti-venom. It's super expensive, right? So it's uh, hard for the average person to be prepared in case of emergency. Yeah. So um, we talked to them. They were very happy with what we had to present to them because we how, came did, up how did you approach them? Did you just shoot them an email and just start the conversation that way? Say, hey, we want to look at this. Yeah. So we sent them a very professional email. Um, before that, we did do a Facebook campaign, letting people know about the bylaw and what it restricts and the repercussions of that, because there are no grandfather clauses in place. So oh, wow. there's nothing to protect the people that had the bio, uh, boas and pythons before. So that does not benefit people. And then on a welfare standpoint, that is negatively impacting a lot of residents because now they're afraid to take their boas, their pythons to the vet because they're worried about the municipality taking them. Mm, great point. So that, that was one of the big concerns for us is that because the bylaw is under an animal welfare bylaw that right. does not promote good animal welfare at all. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and how did they respond to it? Were they pretty open to, to looking at it? Yes. Uh, so the people that we talked to, they weren't part of writing that bylaw. So uh, they didn't have a reason why it was put into place. We did our own research and uh, we thought maybe it was because of the Fort Mac flooding and the fires. Mm -hmm. So they had a big forest fire. And um, so what happened there was a lot of people had to evacuate their homes. They, if they were at work, they had to leave now. They couldn't go home to grab their pets or nothing. So they were rushed out of the city. And uh, so that brought up a lot of other issues as well for the municipality because they were going from door to door trying to see if people were still there or if there was pets that needed water and so on and so forth. So that also brought up some other issues. 
and safety concerns. So is that where you think that bylaw came from? Like, did they know where the bylaw come from? Because, you know, if they didn't work, didn't, weren't part of the team that wrote it, is it just something that just sort of exists in their bylaws and they don't know where it came from? Um, They didn't really have a good reason why they knew it was put in place. Um, unfortunately, because we kind of did our own re- research into their m- meeting minutes, because that's all public information. Right. So we were trying to find the justification on why it was put in place. But it didn't seem that we found any good results. Um, we did find the uh, Mount Royal University study on the fire and the impact that uh, displaced a lot of pets. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of reptiles that were displaced, but there was also a lot more dogs, cats and birds that were displaced than reptiles. So it didn't seem justified to ban uh, Boidae, Pythonidae, and all those other species that they wanted to do um, because of the fire. It didn't make sense because there's a lot more displaced animals than just that. Plus, if you're if you are allowing them to keep out like colubrids, for example, then people are still keeping snakes, so it doesn't really solve the evacuation problem. So that's that's no. a bit strange. So did, yes. did, had, did are they are you guys in the process of having them change that bylaw, or how is that going so far? So the last meeting we had was a little over a month ago now. And um, so they've taken our recommendations. They're going to approach council and see um, if they want to spend money on redoing the bylaw and uh, changing and maybe installing a new program Mm. um, to help mitigate some of these issues that uh, have arised. Um, So by the sounds of it, my recommendation to them was to make the bylaw refer to the Wildlife Act that we have in place. Because when I talked to uh, the city of Pinoca, they were going to ban all exotics. So they didn't realize that encompassed little Susie's guinea pig, uh, little Tommy's bunny rabbit, and a bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. So when I brought that up, they're like, oh, well, we were just worried about the tigers because of Tiger King and the orangutans that ripped that lady's face off and the big mm. pythons. I'm like, you don't have to worry about that because Alberta already uh, regulates that with the Wildlife Act. So if you take a little bit more time before you put this bylaw through and uh, look at the Wildlife Act and the regulations that it has in place, you will be able to make a better bylaw instead of just banning stuff that you think needs to be banned because it's already controlled here. Well, and, and it's cheaper and inexpensive for them to just reference the wild the wildlife act or, or whatever that was called because now they don't have to pay a lawyer to rewrite everything they can just reference something that's already been done yep and then it also uh, takes a lot of that funding relief off of them too because then their bylaw officers aren't responsible for enforcing that because then it's up to fish and wildlife mm, to enforce gotcha. the, the law so then it's not um, it doesn't cost them as much in the long run. Do you think that herp societies in general were more functional and more effective like maybe 20 years ago? I feel like before the internet, they were probably more important. People would get together and hang out and talk about things. And I feel like slowly they've dissolved and a lot of communities don't even have them. Yeah, um, it seems like a lot of herp societies died out because of the internet, uh, unfortunately, um, because it's easier to send a message right now to 500 people versus going to a business place and uh, organizing together on a Tuesday night at seven o'clock when it just does not work for everybody. Um, We still have issues with trying to get a lot of people to our meetings and we host our meetings on zoom now. And Mm. that's super easy. You can log on your phone from wherever you want or your computer. And it's, it's very easy to come to, but also I find um, depending on the direction that the society has gone, 
um, some people don't believe in what the society is doing anymore. So in the past, our society kind of was just focused on hosting the expo. And besides benefiting the vendors and uh, the sales of animals, what else were we doing to benefit the community? Not a whole lot at that time. So that's where a lot of people felt like they didn't need to be part of the society and didn't want to because there was a lack of direction. So I think that's important for anybody who wants to start a society or revamp their current society is having that focused direction on a few things that you want to work on. So a lot of the stuff that we're kind of working on now is a lot of conservation efforts um, and educational efforts. So uh, we have a $10,000 grant with the University of Calgary for five years for um, zoology, onycology, biology, and a couple other things that I can't remember the bigology words. <laughs> so th that money comes from the university to you and then the society disperses it to somebody that you choose? No. Or? So we allocated $7,500 and then they matched $2,500 from the university to create a grant in our name. So somebody who is looking to take a course in that kind of stuff. So um, one of the people that have done that taken that course through the university, I can't remember the exact name of the course was Mike from Alpha Reptile. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a Calgary local and he took that course and he benefited from it. So we figured if more people like him are interested in doing it, why not fund that help fund that education? Yeah, that's that's what I really want people to hear with this because there's a lot of herp societies in North America that are fixer-uppers at this point or non-existent. You know, they've gone under, no one's operating them anymore, or they could just be revamped. So I, I think what you had mentioned there, the community involvement is just so key and it's so much more like the expo, of course, is, you know, that's a piece of revenue for the, the societies. It's important as well, but the community aspect is what gives the herp societies more professionalism. And then you're bringing in you know, more people that way with, you know, interacting with kids and whatnot. So why don't you tell us a little bit, like, what do you think societies should be doing in the community? Um, so with our society direction, what I think is beneficial to the community is being an advocate for us. So when laws are being changed, that we have a voice. So there just is usually two of us from our society that goes and talks with municipalities and, um, we're the voice. So if there's bylaw changes, we can have somebody to talk with and uh, have the community's interest in place. So instead of just banning a bunch of stuff that people think are scary, uh, we can be like, hey, this is the reasons why that is not beneficial because you're cutting down a whole industry. You're losing income for vets and other businesses that do benefit this because there's a lot of stakeholders in this industry um, from breeders, vets, um, big businesses that sell pets and all the accessories and manufacturers that build all the stuff for us that we use, like enclosures, lighting, and all that kind of other stuff. So they all benefit from the community because without keeping pets, all those industries go away. Exactly. Do you do any like community work with uh, like education work with kids or anything like that? Is that something that you eventually want to mix in? Yes. Uh, so in the past, we've done lots of school programs. So we've gone to schools and done talks and shown people animals, had hands-on things. Um, at our expo, we were doing kids' corner so people could have a hands-on experience with uh, reptiles and arachnids. Um, one of our, at the expo, he comes quite often. So for a lot of people who are 
into tarantulas, they'll know this name, uh, Stan Schultz, he wrote the Tarantula Keeper's Guide. So he comes to our expo, we give him a free table because all he's doing is just education mm-hmm. and uh, giving, getting people over their fears of, fears of tarantulas, which is beneficial because people are learning more about something that they thought was very scary beforehand. Mm-hmm. So that's beneficial. Um, we have done lots of uh, other events. So for family day in the past, we've done um, at the Eau Claire market here in Calgary, we've done uh, a reptile event where people get to come on, learn about reptiles, have hands-on experiences, learn about different snakes and lizards. I bring a lot of signage. Uh, Terrace has a lot of signage. We're actually revamping that this year. So we have, um, we can tell people what we're doing and where our focus is, which I think is beneficial. Do you think a herp society could grow to a point where it could be a, a a position where people could get paid to do it? Like you're a president right now. Is that something that would ever be feasible? Could you grow that into a business, still keep it a not-for-profit, but actually pay the people who are running it? I think it's possible if we gain the support of the rest of the community and uh, do things in the right manner. Um, to pay people, it does cost a lot of money. We all put in a lot of time into the society of I actually counted my hours and probably be astronomical. You don't want to do, do that. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd be kind of afraid to figure out how many hours I put in because there's some months where I am, we usually have a board meeting a month and then we have a member meeting a month. So that's usually about four and a half, five hours right there. And then in the meantime, we're doing group chats on to figure out other things. Um, I'm having meetings with municipalities and other committees because we have a lot of different committees to help spread out the workload. And uh, so we have an expo committee. We have a promotions committee. Um, we have quite a few other committees that I'm all part of them because I'm the president. So I got to overview everything. So um, I do a lot of meetings and put in a lot of effort, but it's, it's all beneficial because in, in the long term, I see the long term goals and the long term effect instead of uh, just the initial results, yeah. which goes back to me keeping Madagascar Hognos. It's, it's, it's a long-term goal that I am happy to see the results of, of all this effort. Can we talk a little bit about what we were talking off air before we started recording was the a grant that you guys had received to help fund some research? Because I think that's another area that people may not realize. With the professionalism of a society, you could actually help conservation directly and be that middleman so maybe you could tell us a a little bit about that so i'll start off with our kind of initial conservation efforts so there's uh, another group that we are helping fund to which is a new group of uh, biologists and stuff and they do the alberta amphibian and reptile conservancy our memberships are twenty dollars and twenty five dollars so five dollars of that goes to conservation efforts so the more members we have the more money we can donate and then eventually maybe we can do like a matching program on like, hey, we raise this much money we'll donate X amount of dollars, which benefits conservation. So they do a lot of, they're based out of Edmonton. So they um, do a lot of research on frogs and stuff like that in the area because there's not a whole lot of snakes down up north, a lot of garter snakes, but nothing a whole lot else. And then in the south, which is this big project that we've been kind of working on with uh, AJM Environmental, which Adam has been part of the society for about 10 years. We've been donating to him for a long time, but this is the largest project that we've been in partnership with. So we were able to secure, I think it was just about $200,000 in funding for a three-year term on 
conservation efforts of the prairie rattlesnake because they are th currently threatened. So with some of the information that Adam gave me, which was a lot of information, because um, they've done a lot of monitoring of road fatalities, which is unfortunate, but um, he's monitoring a big den, a big hibernaculum right now. And he has tagged 1,200 rattlesnakes Wow! in that den, which he's talked with other conservation groups like the Rattlesnake Conservancy down in the States and stuff. And uh, this is potentially the largest rattlesnake den in North America. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And it's potentially one of the largest uh, snake dens in Alberta because there's also three other species of snakes in that den. Is sharing the same den? Yes. So the prairie rattlesnake, and then is it some non-venomous like garter snakes in there as well? Garter or? snakes. Um, what else is there? Some racers? I can't remember the name of all the species that we have in Alberta. It's not very many. We have seven species of snakes in Alberta. So yeah, but that that's super cool that uh, we have all these snakes in this one den down in the prairies here in Alberta. That is very cool. So, so he's going to take that 1200 tags and monitor them over the next three years and see kind of how they fare, where they're dying, where we're losing them and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're a threatened species. So it's important for him and the government and uh, this other organization to monitor them and see how their population is doing because they're currently threatened. So that's very close to being endangered. So we don't want that, especially for the only species of rattlesnake that we have in the province. Right. Do you, have you ever seen one in the wild? I've never seen one. I've not seen uh, the prairie rattlesnake in the wild yet. I've seen lots of pictures. Yeah. Lots of really cool pictures that I can send you for the episode two from Adam. Sure. That'd there's, be awesome. There's, there's like one picture where it's like 20 rattlesnakes in just this one den. It is wild. It looks so cool. Yeah. Well, and of course, everybody knows it does get extremely cold. So it's amazing that that species actually can handle the winter. Although I'm sure these dens stay relatively warm. Yeah, which is uh, also brings me up to, we did a, a podcast episode with the Royal Tyrell Museum and they sent me some shorthorn lizard information. So it was a big YouTube a link and I watched that. It was like an hour long, but it was fantastic. And the shorthorn lizard doesn't even burrow underground. They stay on the frost line on the surface and they get covered in like five feet of snow because wow. they, tr they track them and they're like, they're on the ground level with the snow. They're like, what's going on here? Um, and yeah, that was very surprising. Well, that is insane. So that's, is that, I guess, almost like a wood frog, although the wood frogs, like they actually freeze solid, but the, do the lizards, they don't freeze, but you mu they must freeze if they're right at the they, snow line. They must freeze. And uh, some of them don't make it through the winter, um, unfortunately, but uh, a lot of them do. So they must freeze it's like uh, the frogs as well. That's amazing. So. Well, and it, so that's just such an important avenue to realize that the society allows that sort of funding to take place because it's a you have a professional organization and the, the donor is comfortable donating to like they're not just going to donate to a random guy that says he's going to go out and you know even though he's associated with the university it's good to be able to have that money flow through and yes. uh, you know how much information are you going to get from this study who knows it's, it's invaluable yeah in order to get this funding he has to create an outline of what he's doing where the money's going and then um, what kind of research results are we expecting mm. so it's it should be a really cool study there's a lot of radio tracking and um a lot of hibernaculums that he's watching and stuff like that and then all the 
road fatalities. So maybe we can mitigate the road issues at mm-hmm. some point, maybe like I do what they do in some other areas, close the road for a certain period of time to reduce road fatalities and stuff like that. So it'll be beneficial for the government to have all this information. So that way we can do a better action plan to save the species. Yeah. Well, I know in, in Manitoba with the, with the garter snakes, obviously we have the massive breeding dens as well. And they've done, it used to be a massive issue with with road fatalities to the point where it's almost dangerous driving on the road because it becomes so slippery, which is kind of disgusting to, to think about. But yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> they have like now they have like fences that they can guide the snakes into culverts that go underneath the roads, and I think the road fatalities are almost zero. So I can because in in Alberta, I feel like they do a good job of keeping wildlife off the roads. Right when I drive to Banff or something, there's always like really nice big fencing. Is that is am I remembering that right? Yes. So in Banff, because it's a national park, they have invested a ton of money to keep all the animals safe in that area. Um, Recently, I actually found an article that they are installing the first um, animal bridge outside of a national park here in Alberta. Oh, cool. That is also really cool. So uh, this helps save species. It's, It's important. So if this works out in other areas besides the national park, maybe we'll see more of that. So other species can have benefit from it. So not just the the larger animals that mm-hmm. need it because they're getting hit by cars like deer and elk and bears and all this kind of other stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the podcast because you you mentioned a couple of times, I mentioned at the opening that you also have your own podcast and you've done some pretty interesting episodes. So maybe you could just tell us what the podcast is and sort of what to expect from it. And then I have a couple of questions about it. Okay. So I uh, co-host Canadian Herbertial Culture Podcast with my co-host Kiana Fox. And um, we've been taking a break for like six months because she's had some life changes and I've been so busy with Tara's and dealing with laws and all this kind of other stuff and uh, getting Tara's into a more focused direction instead of being all over the place. So that's taken a lot of my time. Um, but we recorded an episode that we should be dropping here shortly. Um, so probably before this recording is aired. Um, Can but, you talk so a little we, bit about that episode? Cause it was, or, or is that still shrouded in some secrecy? Um, so that episode deals with federal laws so that in federal law does not affect us with what we can keep because that's all done on a provincial level, but it does affect shipping and how that is handled because, um, there's a lot of laws in regards to that. So they deal with the CITES animals, uh, shipping prevent interprovincially and internationally. So they deal with all the people who are importing animals illegally and, uh, they re- regulate what people can bring in and then uh, interprovincially. So if you were to sell a retic from Manitoba to Alberta, where it's illegal, that is illegal on both parts. So you both right. would get charged. So we kind of go over that kind of stuff and the different acts that was apply. the guest, was the guest a, f- a federal employee or yes. So uh, it was a federal employee from environment and climate change, Canada. And did they reach out to you to come on the show? Yes, they actually did. They reached out to us because they wanted to uh, talk about some of the information that people get wrong when they think about federal legislation. I'm very much looking forward to listening to that because I remember when you first started talking about this potential of an episode, everyone was kind of worried because we're like, is this, you know, animal rights activists sometimes kind of sneak in under these different titles and whatnot. We were thinking like, is this going to be like some sort of setup and who knows what it's going to be, but it was legitimately a federal employee that wanted to share information. Yeah. So I uh, researched this person before I 
decided to go with the episode and find another position and talk with them more. And I, we had a numerous chats. This uh, episode was like probably eight months before we actually recorded. Right. So, so. are they a reptile keeper themselves or no. how did they get involved? Um, they were a police officer quite for quite a few years. I think he was like 20 years before he got involved in this department. So interesting. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Cool. Yeah. But um, they do appreciate our standpoints and uh, that department also does work with societies and uh, can herp and other organizations in that professional manner as well, because our opinions do matter mm-hmm. and uh, we want to do the right thing for the community. Well, so and they, and they do too, right? Like yeah. they, that's, they want that as well. And that's why it's so important that we do have these professional voices to interact with these entities or else we just get railroaded. And, you know, there's many different examples of that. And, and if there's no society to, to go up for bat for us and it just, you know, it's not going to work. And I, we had talked about a couple of days ago too, well, we have a, a pretty potent federal act, I think that's being read right now. That's, yes. you know, something, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. So it's the Jane Goodall Act. I can't remember the exact number of it. Um, it's like 217. I can't remember. But yeah. yes, uh, so originally that act that act has seen a couple of amendments. So it's been through the first reading and it's not in parliament yet. So they, there's two stages for it. So it's got to be read through um, what they're doing first, which I can't remember exactly what that is. Politics is very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of channels to go through. Uh, municipal co- uh, politics that I've been dealing with is its own nightmare, <laughs> not let alone federal politics. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they, they got to go through three readings. So the Jane Goodall Act, I think, was introduced into the United States first. And then it's kind of to protect elephants, orangutans, and all the big stuff that kind of gets funneled through the black market. And uh, they're trying to shut down roadside zoos. So Joe Exotic and all those other people that are doing not so great things for animal care in the States, which I don't find is a prevalent issue, at least here in Western Canada, because we have a lot of government regulation by the province. So it's a lot harder for people to have a roadside zoo here. Um, there is one unregistered zoo, which is the Discovery Wildlife Park, but they also are in partner with the Calgary Zoo, which is an accredited zoo. So they're kind of under that umbrella. So they're being watched by a, regular, a regulated body. Right. Um, so there, there's some stuff on that list that is questionable to us because uh, after the amendment, the way that it's worded, you can't um, transport animals interprovincially or internationally. So, and some of the stuff that's of question on there for us is a lot of the boas. There's a lot of pythons on there as well. Um, Most of it is large snakes and there's also gila monsters on there Mm -hmm. and all venomous reptiles. So, which also brings me up to a question of what is their definition of venomous reptiles? Is it the ones that cause bodily harm and you have to go to the hospital? So like king cobras, gaboon vipers, and all that kind of other stuff. Or would it also affect me with my hognose collection because they are technically rear fanged venomous? Exactly. Well, and, so, and the boas on that list, it's like every boa species, you know, it's... Uh, it's although, not every boa species. They're uh, BEI, boa imperator is not on there. BCC is BCO, boa. Um, so the Argentine boas, mm-hmm. uh, boa constrictor, constrictor. So the true red tails. Uh, there's a couple species of boa on there that I have never heard of in my life. Yeah, and same. a lot of the other boa breeders and people that deal with a lot of boas 
they're like, I have never seen this in Canada. Like that Mexican so, boa, I'd never seen that as a subspecies before. I forget yeah. exactly what it was like, boa constrictor, Mex- Mexicano or something like that. I'm like, yeah, I've never, I've never heard of that. stuff on there. And uh, some other species, uh, I'd have to open up the list of exactly look at it, which actually I can do that now. It's actually easy to find. If people want to Google search it, just look up the Jane Goodall Act. And it's the same act on both sides of the border, both Canada and US, the same species or... I believe so. Okay, yeah. Because, yeah, it goes to their website and then it goes to the bill. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of... I know is the reptile yeah. list. There's crocodiles on there and um, caimans as well. So that can affect a lot of people in Ontario who keep those animals. Um, yeah. But it's, again, going back to like the large constrictors and some of that stuff, which in Alberta, I agree, it's kind of hard for the average person to keep these animals in a good amount of space for proper welfare. Yes. No, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and but it, right now like you can legally keep a boa emperor in, in Alberta, right? It, yes. We can keep all boas currently. Okay. Oh, okay. All boas. Okay. Yeah. So um, under serpents, they have the Papuan Python, uh, red tail boa, Mexican boa. So boa constrictor, Mexicana boa constrictor, mm, nebulosa so the dominican boa which is also not commonly kept in captivity mm-hmm. um which is different than the dominican red mountain boa so some yes, people yeah. are concerned about that um the argentine boa which are cites one so um a friend of mine actually has them and they yearly have to keep uh their documentation of that species yes, how many it's already produced. Done. yeah it's already under control yeah so this makes no sense to me um, because they're already regulated. Um, the Orton's boa, boa constrictor Ortoni, I've never even heard of that boa. Yeah. Um, maybe, Bolivian, maybe there's some boa experts out there that will know those species. But I'll, when I looked at that list, I was like, I don't know if these are really outdated old subspecies names that are now um, umbrella under just boa constrictor or what's going on. But yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff on here that doesn't make sense. And then there's uh, anacondas. So the Bolivian anaconda and Benny anaconda. So anectus. Benny Sis, I'm probably butchering a lot of these names. <laughs> uh, the green anaconda, yellow anaconda, olive python, uh, reticulated python, Owen Pelly python, Burmese, the Indian python, African rocks, Amethystian, I think I'm butchering that too, and Australian or, or Australian scrub pythons. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a lot of the larger snakes, but a lot of the boas doesn't make sense to me um a lot of this other stuff is kind of already regulated under alberta legislation so that we can't have a lot of this stuff um i think we can have all of pythons here in alberta so which they get large but for it's actually pretty handleable um same with like boa constrictor constrictor yeah exactly they're, they're pretty handleable um i know plenty of people with um argentine boas they get very thick body, but they're not super long. So they're, they're pretty manageable for one to two people. Um, when it becomes more dangerous for you need a mandatory of two people to handle that, I have kind of an issue with the average person caring for them. Unless there was some sort of permit system in place where it's like states, you need X amount of space, you need X amount of people to care for this animal. And if you meet these requirements, that's fine. But with that, because our population is so small here in Alberta and a lot of other places in Canada, I don't see a permit system happening anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, because exactly. of the funding for that is going to be really hard. 
and then uh, the cost of making that program is going to be very expensive and to regulate it and hire people to manage all that stuff. So, well, it's the same I, thing as with, with the venomous too. Like it's most people shouldn't have venomous. If people are keeping venomous, there should be some sort of permit system or some sort of education system, but that's so much work to do to actually establish something like that. Yeah. But at the same time, when you just ban it, it completely, it's a little bit scary because you think, okay, is it going to be difficult to get those animals in to do research, for example, in a university? Like, yeah. is that going to be now a, like a nightmare for a university to get to import an animal? And, and you know, so it's tricky. Well, on, under these acts um, as well, if you read through a lot of the wording and restrictions and stuff, they have a list of regulatory bodies that are allowed to keep these animals. So the uh, Calgary Zoo, a bunch of other places, University of Calgary and stuff like that. So already recognized okay uh, facilities so, so they, that helps a bit yes it does but it doesn't benefit the people that already have these animals in captivity and i'm i have to look deeper into the law to make sure if there's um, a grandfather clause and how that affects people because a lot of grandfather clauses like this it's like you can keep the animal until it dies and that's it and you can't breed it or sell it or give it away or anything so it's at it's at your home until you either it euthanize it or it dies. Yeah. So that's something that we're going to have to look into. Um, it hasn't reached parliament yet. So the society is going to be working on writing up a letter and uh, we're going to make it so you can be like, I, whatever your name is. And then we're going to have the rest of the letter and then a place for you to sign off and send it to your MLA. Mm -hmm. Because something that we noticed is a lot of people have a hard time reaching out to government bodies, MLAs and all these other people in a professional manner. So we're going to make it plug and play, write a nice letter, uh, work with Canherp on that, uh, make sure we're all on the same page. And then that, and then everybody that sends this letter in is going to have the same exact voice. Yeah. And that makes us look more unified and more professional. It's the same so thing that, they did. Canherp put that together for Winnipeg when the Winnipeg was going through those bylaw changes. Yeah. And I'm, I think those were pushed back or... You know, maybe, I don't know if yes. they were defeated yet, but, but it was uh, it was pushed back. They're not going to go through with the bylaws currently. Okay, yeah, it was voted uh, three to one. So they did a great job of having that go out to everybody. It was super easy. You just go to a website, you type in your name. I think you clicked a couple buttons, but you didn't have to write anything, and then it just automatically was sent out to the MLA and. Yeah. And, uh, and then, yeah, you, I mean, I know I even got a response from the MLA at some point later saying, thank you. And, you know, we're looking at this. And so, you know, that they were actually getting to where they need to be. And it's like you said, it, no, you're not asking the community to sit down and type out something. It's already done for them. And yeah. it's, uh, and it was effective because the bylaws that they tried to bring in were really wild. And, it was wild. but if we, if we weren't there to stand up for it, it would have gone through. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, that bylaw was also kind of pushed in by, are not so friendly people from WAP, World Animal Protection, and uh, Zuchek. So, and also Zuchek is decimating Ontario right now with a bunch of other bylaws in Oshawa and other places as well. Mm -hmm. So, Canherp has their hands full with that kind of stuff. Did, did so, you ever talk to that federal employee about how they? Because I'm guessing the the government will perpetually be approached by animal rights organizations and they can be so persuasive as well but I, I was wondering from a federal employee point of view do they do they look at those people with like super credibility or do they always kind of take them with a grain of salt or did you even ask that i did ask that and he couldn't really give me an answer because he's just there to enforce the laws right so that's their department and that's what they do so he gets the um, sheet this is the laws that you have to enforce today he has nothing much. to do so, with how it yes. happens 
Yeah. So he's, he's not responsible for how it happens. So it's our duty to talk to the politicians and all these other people. So starting with the MLAs, because the MLAs can talk on our behalf. Yeah. Um, and because they want to be voted in again. So if they benefit a bunch of people who are talking about this subject matter, they'll want to work with us on it if possible. Exactly. One other thing that you do with the society that you've just started to do that I really want to talk about is the emergency action plans. So can you tell us about that? Because this is something that we need in the community and in our, in the hobby and we don't really have. Yes. So um, recently there's been a lot of fires within businesses and homes with people with reptiles and stuff like that. And then also on social media, I see a lot of people of the power went out. What should I do? Mm -hmm or whatever the situation may be um, power outages because a big snowstorm, which affects a lot of people here in Canada um, floods like Fort Mac had big forest fires and stuff like that. So this actually kind of developed from the municipality chat that we had because their lawyer was concerned about what people can do in these cases of emergency. So like, how can they be more prepared? So it's, less of a responsibility on the municipality because people are being more responsible for their pets and all these incidents that are happening. So we are working, excuse me, on numerous action plans for people to hopefully be a little bit more prepared in these cases. Fire is kind of the worst case scenario. Um, so that's, it's hard to write for something for that. Um, so like as a fire, is that, does that mean your house is on fire or there's a wildfire outside your town that could consume or, or both we're, basically? We're going to be working on both because okay. uh, large scale events do affect people in their homes. Sure. Um, so we're actually working with the Calgary Emergency Management Association with this because I reached out to them first for, because we want to get professional opinions from other people in the industry for emergencies fires and all this kind of other stuff. So we're reaching out to firefighters and those people, electricians, because that's a big issue too, is uh, people overloading their circuits because their home was built in the sixties and they don't know the power rating or if their circuit breaker is wore out and um, it might not trip because it's wore out and right. then that causes excessive heat on the power cord. And then it could potentially start a fire um, because they overloaded their circuit. And uh, sometimes the fail safes fail unfortunately. So there, it's not going to be a hundred percent foolproof because stuff does go wrong. Um, sometimes wiring isn't correct from the manufacturer. Um, I know a lot of people have issues with heat tape that's manufactured and it's, I've had it burn through the bottom of a PVC enclosure yeah. with the animal inside. I'm lucky the animal was on the other side of the enclosure and it didn't get injured. And that's very scary. So I think us creating these plans to help people be more prepared for a different type of emergency makes the community more responsible, uh, gives us a better image to the province, to the municipalities, and to federal governments that we're trying to be more proactive in these situations. So, so basically, it'll be just a package of different emergencies, and then you yeah. have a pamphlet that you can go through and give you something. What will you do with that? Will you open that up to people who aren't in terrace people who are outside of alberta or will that will yes you, because it's kind of a lot of work on your part to just give it to everybody for free yes so um we are thinking probably just at expos that we'll just have an emergency kit um so with like a bunch of heat packs because we talk to vets our uh, exotic vets that are part of the society as well and uh, see what they have to input for emergency kits and so, some information um so we might be selling kits and stuff like that but 
all of our information is probably going to be free on a PDF to download. Okay. It, it is a lot of work, but um, the benefit for the community is more valuable to me than getting paid for the work. Well, then other societies can have it. And also, you know, these are our emergency action plans. Maybe they have to tweak it for their area or make a different yep. one for flooding or whatever it is. But th- then every society has access to these and we can show you know, these are how we're being proactive. So maybe we could just like, I don't know if you have any of these off the top of your head, but what, what are some things that are involved in these emergency action plans? Like, let's just talk about a fire. What, what do people do? So, um, within like a home fire, you can have an ABC fire extinguisher, which, um, depending on your situation might be ideal. Um, so talk to your local fire department to make sure what uh, extinguisher they recommend because that can be a liable issue. So that's also something we have to be careful careful about because we aren't professionals in that industry, so we can't make exact recommendations. Right. Um, but once we get the support from uh, the emergency association here in Calgary, uh, we might be able to do that because it's endorsed by somebody who is a professional in that industry and sure. helps regulate that. Um, so having a smoke alarm in your reptile room that can alert you before a fire breaks out. So if it's something smoldering, like electrical, you'll, your fire alarm will go off and then having an extinguisher in there will help mitigate that issue. And then you're going to have smoke inhalation for your animals. So you want to take them to a, the vet as soon as possible um, just to make sure that they're doing good. Yeah. Um, there's not a whole lot that vets can do, but they can just make sure the overall health is good. So if they get too much smoke that they might need to do whatever they need to do at the clinic to make sure that animal has a successful recovery from that incident. Mm. And what about power outages? Cause that's a big one. Of course, many people lost animals last year in Texas with the pretty long power outage. Mm. And it seems kind of, you think, because we were, there was a threat of maybe the power going out here a couple of days ago, cause we had this massive blizzard. And I was thinking like, if the power goes out, I probably have a couple of days at least before things get too cold. So typically I don't think I've ever seen the power go out for longer than that, but you know, you have to prep for it. If you lose yes. power for a couple of days, it can get cold in your home really quickly. So for like here in Canada, if you can, I, I recommend getting a generator because if it's minus 30, your home's going to cool down fast, especially yeah. in the wintertime. Um, so that might be ideal. And then also in the summertime, some places get really hot. And if you don't have AC and, or the power goes out because we have power streams here in the summertime because everybody's running their AC. So that can cause power outages too. Then you can overheat your animals, which is almost as bad as having them too cold because having them too cold for a period of time is somewhat okay, depending on the temperature. Um, talk to your vet about that. Um, and yeah, it's just being prepared. And then also if you can't afford a generator, buy bulk order a pack of heat packs for like 72 hour heat packs and then have snake bags or something that you can just toss your animals in and then a styrofoam cooler. So that way you can retain as much heat as possible if you need to. Um, or if you have the generator, you can put a space heater in your snake room to keep the ambient temperature. And there's, there's, there's multiple ways to go about it, but just find out, find what way is going to be easiest for you to maintain in that time frame. Because if you're out of power for like three days, that's a long time to um, be without power for your animals. Yeah. I just say, um, what you don't want to do is look for heat packs and how to buy them when your power is already out. Like all this stuff needs to be done beforehand. And then it becomes very simple. It's like, okay, implement this plan. If the power is going to be out for more than 12 hours today, then we're moving the snakes to these coolers or, you know, styrofoam bins with the warming packs and we'll be okay. 
Exactly. And then also for like large scale events, like large fires, forest fires and flooding and stuff like that, maybe have a contingency plan to have your animals move to a different city temporarily to your parents' place or somebody who's like, hey, yeah, you can keep your animals here in case of emergency for X amount of time. So that way, if there's a large scale event that you have a backup plan in case you can't have your animals in your home. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about right now because we just got dumped on with all the snow, the river here. Like I live in a floodplain. Manitoba is a floodplain, South Manitoba. And so it is, the river is already insanely high. And then we got, you know, a foot and a half of snow in the middle of April, which is just really unusual. So luckily the town I lived in, or I live in is diked. So we do have this, you know, wall of dirt that surrounds us that's supposed to protect us from a flood, but that could breach. And I'm thinking like everything needs to leave the basement as soon as possible. You you have to, you know, you're going to have to leave the enclosures. They're going to get damaged. But the most important thing is hopefully get the electronics out, but of course get the animals out. Yeah. And uh, we've had similar cases here in Calgary, like the, I think it was a 2013 flood here in Calgary. And they've done a lot of flood mitigation since then for that, because of all the extra snow that was in the mountains and then it runs off here and then it floods the whole city. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we have to be aware of here. Luckily, I live on top of a hill, so unless it's going to be like 30 feet of water, I don't really have to yeah. worry about it. If you flood, then we're all done anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's issues that people have to think about. And uh, I find the reptile community does not think about these issues ahead of time until they come up. Um, so it's just about being proactive and uh, figuring out how we can ease the stress off of people. And then also another one that we are going to kind of work on is just um, a document for what are you going to do with your pets if you pass away? So some people have tortoises or birds or whatever that might outlive us. So those pets will be passed down to whoever you deem that to. Or in a sudden death, some sort of accident or whatever, um, where do you where are your animals going to go? Because it's going to be a lot of stress on your significant other to uh, deal with instead of figuring out how much are these animals worth because you told them it was 50 bucks and it's actually a thousand dollar snake because you didn't want to tell your wife how much it cost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. See, that could happen. That's why you got to be honest with how much you've spent. (laughs) Yes, exactly. No, that's a really good point too. And I think other than maybe fish would be fish keepers would be able to rival reptile keepers with the volume of animals that people keep. You know, if you have a dog or a cat, it's, you know, people might have three or four dogs, maybe a couple of cats. And if you're needing someone to deal with those animals, either in a death or an emergency situation, it's pretty quick, you know, call the dog, it jumps into the car, but reptiles, it's not simple. Like you're going to have to ask someone to go into an enclosure, pull out an animal that they're almost certainly going to be afraid of. And then there's 30 of them. Yeah, exactly. So it, it can be very difficult. And so it's just about, about being prepared for different scenarios and ha- having people with the right information. So it's going to take a long time before these programs are all out. So we'll probably release them as uh, we get finished each one. So there'll be probably a dozen documents at this point with all the different things that I keep thinking of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's, it's all important information for people to be aware of. Absolutely. Um, because it's, it's a lot of stuff that we don't think about. Yeah. And it's the stuff we don't want to think about. That's why we probably have not done it in the past. Nobody wants to think exactly. about these emergencies, but it is, it's better to have the work done beforehand. Um, so yeah, no, that's fantastic. Is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you wanted to mention before we there, wrap up? 
I think that's uh, a lot of information for people to take in. It is. But, yeah. uh, if people have more questions about our society or want us to help them with forming a society, they can reach us at uh, albertareptiles at gmail.com. They can check out our website as well, which is albertareptiles.ca um, and check out Tara's. And uh, if you want to become a member, there's links to that on our website and you can email us as well and uh, come check out the expo in May. Uh, May 28th and 29th at uh, the Absolute Baseball Academy in Calgary. So we put on the Calgary Reptile Expo twice a year. Um, uh, all entries from the expo helps fund our programs that we do. So all this safety programming. Uh, oh, we're also handing out stickers. So uh, we might be able to send you some of those too. Um, cool. Emergency stickers for people's doors. So they're a little bit more encompassing than the regular stickers was the, just dogs and cats and then has a section for others. So ours has reptiles at the top and then it has uh, fish and amphibians. Uh, and birds. these are these stickers that you put on like the front of your door to, to to basically when first responders come, if there's a fire or something, they can just look at the door. They go, okay, there's two dogs circled and like five snakes or whatever. So they know immediately what the house has and what they exactly. have. Exactly. So it helps in emergency situations. So if, if you're not home, they um you can put your phone number on there so they have somebody to contact instead of we don't know how to get a hold of this person because our house is burning down yeah um it just makes it a little bit faster for emergency services to get a hold of you instead of going through the city like hey do you have a up-to-date phone number for this person so we can contact them so on and so forth yeah it just makes it a little bit easier it's not going to be for everybody because maybe somebody doesn't want to put on there that they have 40 snakes in their house <laughs> yeah but uh, it's up to the user discretion. And also we're trying to encompass everybody who keeps lower amount of reptiles because those outweigh the majority of us that keep numerous amount of reptiles. Exactly. So I'm trying to get them involved in the community and the society and be aware of us. Um, they don't have to get involved with the society if they don't want to, but if they want to get a membership, that's beneficial to us. And uh, they might not know about these laws. So if they hear about us at their vet clinic, because we're giving out these stickers at a vet, they'd be like, oh, hey, what's this about? And uh, it gives them more information to get involved with us potentially. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And and that's what I really hope people get from this conversation is there's, as I said earlier, there's definitely societies within the continent and, and in Europe too, I'm sure that, that need help and need some you know, to, to be re renewed and restarted again and, and restructured. And you've sort of highlighted how beneficial and positive those can be in the community. So if anyone does need uh, some help doing that, I know that you'll be, you're already super busy, but I'm sure you're, you're always willing to help out other people, you know, get things off the ground. And if for anybody that is in the Calgary area, definitely go check out that expo. I'm thinking I might try, I, I can't go to the one in May, but the, there's the one in Red Deer that I know you guys don't put on, but the Western Canadian Reptile Expo. Yeah. I, I, or, yeah, the WCRE, yeah. Yeah, I may try to make my way out to there in August. We'll see. I'll be there. If so you're there. Is, the Terrace will, I think we're going to get two tables. Okay. Because uh, this year we invested in ourselves and got a lot of new banners. So we got six pull-up banners, a bunch of different information about what we do. And we got an eight foot by eight foot curved banner. Oh, awesome. So it's going to have kind of what our mission is, our logo, uh, some of the stuff that we do and uh, some organizations that we are in partners with. Cool. Well, if I'm there, obviously I'll come visit your table. And can you let everybody else know where they can find you on social media or any more about the podcast as well? Um, they can find our podcast, Canadian Hypocritical Podcast. If you just Google that, it pretty well pops up everywhere. But uh, on Facebook, you can look up chp.podcast and same on Instagram. You can find my inactive 
Instagram page for my breeding that I kind of just, it's not a big focus of mine. I'd rather do the society stuff because I see more benefit from that than yeah. producing animals. Um, so that's ectotherm creations. I haven't posted on there in like eight months. <laughs> I don't even know if I follow you on there. I'll have to go I'll go follow you on there, but I'll make sure that that's in the show notes as well as all the links to the podcast and whatnot. And then, uh, yeah, and then Alberta reptiles. Um, so I'm on the page for members and stuff like that. So you can find me as president and all that information there. Um, check out the society. If you can uh, come to our meetings, if you're in Alberta, because we're the Alberta reptile amphibian society. That's why we do zoom meetings now because I'm trying to encompass everybody that lives within the province. Yeah. Or it was uh, in-person meetings, which was kind of hard for anybody that didn't live in Calgary to come to meetings. So that just made us, in my opinion, the Calgary Reptile Society, not the Alberta Reptile Society. So if you can come to Zoom meetings, check us out. And then if you want, you can get a membership from there. Cool. Well, I love what you're doing. I can't wait to see how this progresses. And like I said, I think this is a really important conversation to have. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Brandon. This was great. Thanks for having me on and uh, talking about societies and their importance. I hope a lot of people get a lot of information from this and uh, can develop their own thoughts on societies and join one if they want in their area and see where it goes. Yeah. I'm sure you've motivated some people. So that was great. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. All right. That is the end of that episode. Brandon, thank you so much for stopping by and joining me on an episode. And and thank you so much for laying out how your society works and giving us some ideas for how we can start firing these up into other locations. And I, I do think healthy herp societies will be a huge key to the health and overall well-being of herpetoculture in the future. And it would be nice to see these things start to fire up on a, on a more substantial level. Like I said through the intro, I think herp societies were a lot more common in the past. And we talked about this in the episode as well. And I think it's time to bring them back. So if you are looking for a great project in your community, if there isn't a herp society, this is a, a good way to go about it. And I think Brandon would be a great resource for you if you're looking for more information on how to do that. Listeners, if you enjoyed the episode, the best thing and the easiest thing you can do is just share it. Share it on social media, Facebook or Instagram. That really does help get other listeners on the show, which is great. If you're looking for more information for the podcast, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. The show notes for every episode are published there. If you would like to help support the podcast financially, you can do that for as little as $3 a month over at patreon.com slash animals at home. If you just head there, you'll be able to see the different perks that you get with the different tiers, but everybody will have access to the Discord server so you can chat with myself and other keepers that listen to the podcast as well. And finally, thank you so much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. You can find affiliate links in both the YouTube description or the show notes, or just head to animalsathome.ca slash CRH. That will take you directly to Custom Reptile Habitats website, and that will be the affiliate link that you can use to automatically give me some commission based off of your purchase. You don't have to do anything else other than go to that link and make your purchase as you normally would. And... That is it. As I said in the intro, we're getting back to regular episodes. It's not going to be every seven days. I think I'm going to aim for every 10 days for now. So three episodes a month. And then we're trying to get back to that four episodes a month, hopefully in the next month or two, or maybe maybe even less. With the editor, it really does help a lot. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll catch you next episode.